0: Uh, Thank you, Father, for bringing us here this morning and for gathering uh, the church. We ask that you would give us uh, open hearts and minds. Help us to pay uh, heed to what you say. I pray that um, I will preach in a way that will make your word clear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, some, some days have passed since the day of Pentecost... We we don't know how many days have passed, maybe a few, maybe even a week or two. Uh, Luke does tell us, though, in verse 47 of chapter 2, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we can know that the church, which had, we saw last Sunday, had 3,000 added to it to make 3,120. Now has more than 3,120. We just don't know how many. But the God is adding to their number every day. Pay attention to the wording of that sentence, at least part of it. The Lord added to their, to their number. You'll find, you'll find phrases like that sprinkled throughout the book, the book of Acts. And it may be that if, if we had the opportunity to interview some of the people who were added, they may not have described it in the same way. I when I came to faith, I told people just that. I came to faith. I turned my life over to Jesus. I I accepted Jesus in my heart. I used phrases like that. And it took me several years to ask the question: well, why? Why did I do that? Why hadn't I done it before? Why did I, on that particular day, experience that that crisis of, of despair? Why didn't I, on that particular day, do what I had done for all of my life up to that point? shove the feelings of, of guilt and, and shame and aloneness and all that other stuff down into the darkness of my being and it just go on about my life? Why on that particular day did the words I'd heard many times before, Jesus died for you. He came to save you from, from your sins. Why on that day did that truth become so beautiful and so desirable and so compelling, like a, a stream of cool water in the desert, or, or dawn after a very long, cold, hard night. And, and here's the answer. It's because on that day, the Lord added me. The Lord opened my eyes. The Lord unclogged my ears. The Lord cut through the calluses that I'd been Uh, building around uh, around my heart. The Lord gave me new birth. He saved me. It's really good that Luke writes the way that he does. Who knows what sort of ideas I might get otherwise. What sort of boasts I might otherwise make. I mean, I still do say I came to faith because I did come to faith. But, But now I know that I came to faith because I was lost and my shepherd found me. Salvation is his work from start to finish. He sets it going and he carries it through to to the end. And it's really good for the church, for you and and for preachers, me and and everyone else who stands behind this pulpit, uh, to know this, lest we think that adding to the number of those being saved is something that, that we do. If we were to get that idea into our heads, what would happen if we went through a period of time when nobody was being added? Such, the church goes through periods like that. We might begin to think that the instrument acts, or holds out to us the, the, the scalpel by which Jesus cuts to the heart and adds new souls to his church, namely the Word of Christ. We might begin to think that that's insufficient for the task, and try something else. And there's lots of something else's out there that we might try, from liturgical dance and labyrinths on one side, and uh, to fog machines and five-step sermons to a better you on the other. Using those something else's, we might add to our number, but we would not add those being saved, because we will have ceased to offer Jesus Christ, the author of salvation, who, who authors salvation by his words shared, read, and preached. Now, you might remember from last Sunday, and you can actually, if you look up at verse 30, 43, you'll see it. You might remember from last Sunday that Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders uh, and signs were being done through the apostles. And you might have wondered at the point, and you might have asked at that point, well, what kinds of signs, and what kinds of, of wonders were the apostles doing? And, and Luke is glad you asked if you asked that, because we're going to take a look at an example of the kinds of signs and wonders that were being done. Let's begin there in verse one of chapter three. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. People in those days counted their hours from sunrise to sunset. The sun rose around 6 a.m., that would be the first hour, and if you do the math, which I did, the ninth hour turns out to be around 3 p.m. That's the hour of prayer. In uh, Numbers, Chapter 28, verse 3, God commands the priests to offer to him, sacrifice to him, two lambs each day. You sacrifice The priest would sacrifice one at around 6 a.m., the first hour, and they would offer the second one at 3 p.m. That's the, that's the hour of prayer that's being spoken of here. Along with the lamb, they would offer prayers. Uh, by this time, by this time in, in Israel's history, Everyone knew these prayers by heart. And if you lived in Jerusalem, then you would be in the temple. You would go to the temple at both prayer times, at six and, and at three in the afternoon, in the morning and in the afternoon. Now, you might think just hearing about that, that's a lot of church to shove into my day. I mean, two times having to go to church per day, it's hard enough to go once per week, especially, uh, you know, in football season and other times like that. But if you were and English person, I'm just using that as an example, if you were an English person living maybe 300 years ago, uh, this would not at all be an unfamiliar pattern. Uh, your whole day would revolve around the church. You, you'd go for prayer in the morning when the bells rang, you'd go to morning prayer, and then after your work day, you'd go when the bells rang to evening prayer, um, and that would be every day for you, and including Sunday. And you'd probably know a whole bunch more of the Bible than maybe you know now, because at both of those times, you'd have the Bible read to you, and so you'd come out uh, full of, of knowledge of the, of the scriptures, of uh, living a life like that. It was a pretty good system. Um, and Peter and John seem to be taking part in a very, very early form of that, of that pattern. Now, if you were here for the sermons through the book of Hebrews, you might ask the question, and you should ask the question, why are Peter and John going to the temple for the sacrifice of a lamb. Because if you were with us through Hebrews, you know Jesus has already offered the one sacrifice, once offered and once forever offered for the sins of the whole world. The the sacrifice for which All the previous sacrifices were mere shadows. The sacrifice that made the temple and all of the sacrificial system obsolete. Hasn't the the curtain uh, in front of the Holy of Holies been ripped in two from top to bottom? Isn't there now peace with God through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice? Why are they going to the temple? Well, all of that's true, but, but if you remember uh, as we went through John, that the night before Jesus died in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus said to his apostles, I have got more to teach you. I've got more to teach you. You can't bear it now. After I've departed, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to continue to teach you all the truth. That teaching and leading is still going on. It's still happening in the book of Acts. It hasn't been fully communicated yet. All the, all the ramifications of Jesus' death and resurrection, well, that took time to be revealed and then, and then grasped by, by the apostles. We, we have all that truth for us completed in, in the New Testament, but they didn't have the New Testament yet. They couldn't open up Acts and ask themselves, why are we going to the temple? They're in Acts. They, they don't see it. They don't have a New Testament at all. So, As we we walk through Acts, we're going to see a number of things that that they had to work out. What do you do with Gentiles when they become Christians? Do you make them be circumcised or not? How do you figure that out? The apostles are going to have to work on that as as Jesus continues to teach them through this book of Acts. So, Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And we learn in verse 2, a man and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. This is a day and time without wheelchairs. Wheelchairs, if you have ever had to use one, at least give a disabled person some level of freedom. You can go where you want to go, when you want to go there. And in our day, at least, buses and trains and uh, planes and public buildings are are designed to help people who have been bound to wheelchairs get around. This man doesn't live in that sort of world. To get anywhere, anywhere, someone has to put this man in a cart or, or pick him up and carry him from place to place, like they're doing here. And nothing in his world is made with him in mind. I don't, I don't like, maybe, maybe you're different, but I don't like uh, to feel like I'm causing anyone around me extra work, uh, like I'm making anybody, uh, in, in, inconveniencing anybody, or I'm making anyone go out of their way to, to, to help me, but this man's never known anything else but that. He's been lame from his mother's womb. I remember each one of our of our babies, and at first, when you have a baby, they're so tiny and they're like light as a feather, and you're carrying them around. You can carry them around in one arm, and so it's no big deal. They're so uh, they're so light. But the thing with babies is that they eat, and that's that, and that's good, I guess. But it also means they get they get rounder and they get fatter and they get and they get heavier, and and then pretty soon, like, like by month ten or month eleven, you're you, you're carrying this car seat with this massive fat baby in it and the baby and you're just wait honey when will this thing walk please <laughs> well, I want this thing to start getting up on his own legs and walking around and when it finally does take he or she takes his first or, or her first steps you're ecstatic and you're so so happy that it's it's finally happened for about a month Or two, and then you're chasing the thing all over the place, and you want to strap it back down um, in in a seat, and you can't. But but this man's mother and father never wished, never wished that, never wished they could strap him back in, because they never hovered over him as he made his way, clinging to the coffee table from one side of the couch to the other when little boys his age and little girls his age were running and playing, he was, he was not. He's never known any of the things that the other kids knew. And as he grew from infancy to childhood, and this is unique for their culture, as he grew from infancy to childhood, the people around him would wonder, who sinned? Who sinned? That was the assumption then. If you're blind or you're deaf or you're lame or disabled in in any way, it's not just, and this is the correct view, it's not just that in a world that's ruined by sin and marred by death, people are just in general born with infirmities. That's not the way they think. No, you, you personally must have done something to deserve this, or your parents. But what you're experiencing is the result of some sin. Yours, or your mother's, or your father's, or both of them. And it's, so it's not just, if you're growing up this way, it's not just that you can't do what the other kids do. It's your fault you can't. There, there's shame that comes with the disability. And you don't know what you've done. Yahweh, who who knit you together in your mother's womb, has seen something displeasing in you from the day of your birth. That's what you'd think. It's not true, but that's what you'd think. And he's brought you low. And now, by this time, the man is over 40 years old. You can see that down in verse 22. He's in his 40s. Maybe when, when he was younger, his parents might have sought out some physician, maybe to, to find some kind of way to heal him. And maybe as a young man, he, he prayed and hoped for some kind of cure, but he's in his 40s now. He's not getting better. All, all that's left to him is to sit at the gate with his hands held out for enough money to buy food and and drink and live on, at least for another day. But really, and you have to imagine that he wondered this, what's the point? The people who carry him do seem to care for him. Uh, They don't throw him down. If you remember in Jesus' parable, the people who carried Lazarus to the gate of the rich man kind of threw him down, these people lay lay him down in his usual place at the gate called Beautiful, which leads into the courts of the temple. And and from that gate, he can peer into, into the courts and hear the prayers and see the people and the priests, and he can smell the incense and the sacrifices. In this way, it is like Lazarus because he he can see and he can smell the feast, but he can't go in. Not just because they won't carry him. Even if they carried him, he can't go in. There's a, there's a law in, in Leviticus 21 that says a descendant of Aaron, that's a priest, who's lame cannot serve as a priest. And the reason for that is that the temple precincts represent a kind of return to Eden. And the priests represent uh, God to the people and represents the people to God. And so he can't bear the, the physical mark of, of, of the fall, the physical marks of the fall. But that law does not forbid a lame man, whether he be a son of Aaron or not, doesn't forbid a lame man from going into the temple? That's not forbidden there. And later on in Scripture in first, uh, or Second Samuel chapter five, we read that there was a saying, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And uh, that's the house of God, the the temple. Um, But then if you read the context, you realize the blind and the lame in that passage probably doesn't refer to real blind people and real lame people. It refers to the Gentiles, the foreigners. In that case, specifically Jebusites. It's not the Bible that keeps this man out. It's the tradition of the elders, which was in that time oral, but later it was written down in the Mishnah, and I'll read the section of the Mishnah for you. Everyone must present himself before the Lord except a man that is lame or blind or sick or aged, and one that cannot go up to Jerusalem on his feet. So the man can't go in, even if someone carries him. He can only sit there at the gate called beautiful. Many think the beautiful gate, and no one really knows exactly where it was. Many believe it's the, the ornate, grand entrance that Josephus describes in one of his writings called the Nicanor Gate. It's, it was opulent, bronze, gold, silver worked into the, into the stone, a beautiful, beautiful gate. It's the gate that you would most want to pass through if you are going for the hour hour of prayer. And it would be a great place to beg. What a contrast, if you just kind of step back and let let the scene play out in your head. The, the, The gleaming gateway with all of its opulence and grandeur and splendor. And then there in the entryway sits this man, not clothed in splendor at all. His legs are deformed, his hands outstretched. His hungry eyes eagerly scan the faces of those who pass by, looking for mercy and kindness. But if there's no mercy and kindness, he'd take a coin or two with coldness. That would do. And we read that, verse three seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter and John go to the temple every day, not only for the hour of prayer, but they also. We learned earlier the church meets there. So, so maybe the man recognizes and knows who Peter and and John are. Uh, maybe he's heard that those who are part of this new, uh, new new thing that's going on sell their possessions and give to the apostles, and the apostles distribute those the the proceeds to those those in need. Maybe he's heard all that, but maybe he hasn't. Maybe he just sees. A larger, older man together with a younger, a younger man coming in for the hour of prayer. We don't know, and we don't know what he said when he when he made his ask. Help me! I'm hungry. Please give me give me something so I can eat. I've noticed, and I'm not I'm not proud of this at all, but I have noticed it that when I do give something to someone who's who's begging, I don't know why. But it it does seem pretty common. It's almost like instinct uh, to make the transaction as quickly as possible. Uh, I, 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 I don't usually make eye contact or engage in conversation. I give the money and walk on rather quickly. Again, I'm not saying that's a good thing at all. I'm just saying I've noticed that. And I think it's a fairly common thing for people to do. And maybe it was common back then as well. But you'll notice. Peter doesn't do that. In verse 4, Peter directed his gaze, as did John, at this man, and said, look at us. Now you have to ask, I mean, has the man already looked away? He made his ask, and he looked, maybe, maybe he asked for the money, and, and he noticed that neither John nor Peter were reaching inside their cloaks. And if you're in that position, you can't, you can't afford to sit around and wait. So maybe he'd already looked, trying to find the next person to ask. But they're not moving on. Look at us, Peter says. So he fixed, this is verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He's expecting money. Why, why, would, why would he expect anything else? He, he's not, and you need to see this, he's not believing God for his miracle here. He, he's, he's, there, there's nothing spiritual about this. There, there, there's, no, there's no faith here. No no mystical expectations about what the apostles are going to do. He just wants money so he can eat. Now, it's important to see that. This man has not done anything first. He's not offered anything first. He's got nothing at all. The reason it's important to see that is because uh, how, some, some would have you ask, how can you expect God to help you when you've given nothing to him? No prayer, no faith, no good works. You've gotta go, you got to go. You've got to at least meet God halfway before you can expect him to help you. Why should God help you when you haven't helped him, when you haven't done anything for him? It's hard to think of a religious idea more repugnant to the scriptures and to the property and character of God than that one. This man has nothing. He can't walk. He can't work. There's nothing for him to give. He can only receive. His condition is a a stigma. He believes that God is against him and the house of the Lord has been shut to him. And it's here that you should remember, and if you don't remember, I'll remind you, so so don't worry, that that when you read in the Gospels and in Acts about healings and deliverances and people being raised from the dead and cured from blindness and all that sort of thing, it's about more than healings and being raised from the dead and curing from blindness. It's about those things, but it's about more. Way back in Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, to the people You're blind, and you're deaf, and you're lame. And he's not talking about their bodies. He's talking about their spirit. And God says to Isaiah, I'm going to come one day, and I'm going to open your eyes so you see, and I'm going to open your ears so you hear, and I'm going to take away your hardness of heart. And so here comes Jesus, and he does these physical healings where he raises people up, but it's not just about that. That's a sign of what he does also in the heart. What can you give to God to pay for your healing? What work can you do? How can you make up for the sins you've already committed? Is there any way to pay back the debt that you owe to him? Upon what spiritual resources can you stand? I'll answer those questions for myself. I've got nothing. Nothing. I was blind, I was deaf, I was lame. I'd been that way since my mother's womb. There's no doctor on earth who could have healed me and there's no medicine in the world that could have cured me. But then he came. Jesus came to me and he didn't pass by. He directed his gaze toward me and he lifted up my head and he spoke. Just like here, Jesus speaks through Peter. And Peter says to this man, "I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. The man, maybe maybe his, you can imagine, his right hand may have been extended to palm out for, for the money that he expected to get. And then as Peter speaks and says, "I don't have." silver or gold, you can imagine his heart must have sunk when he, those words came out of, out of Peter's mouth, as it does when the thing that you want most is denied to you. Your heart, your heart sinks. But then the words, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, that is, what I'm about to do to you, what I'm about to say to you, I do and say to you with the authority and power and by the will and goodness of Jesus of Nazareth, Rise up. And Peter takes the man's hand. And you'd need someone to do that if you were this man. You'd need someone to take your hand. Because if I were that man, and and someone said to me, rise up, I'd say, what do you mean, rise up? I can't walk. Why do you think I'm here? I'm here begging because I can't rise up. That's the whole problem. I can't walk. That's why I'm here. But there's no time to say any of that for this guy because Peter takes his hand and raises him up just like like Jesus reached down and took hold of Peter. You might remember as his head was uh, sinking beneath the waves when he'd gotten out of the boat, pulled him up, raised him up. Just like he took the cold, dead hands of Jairus' daughter. You might remember this. And said, little girl, I say to you, arise, get up. And she rose up, just as he breathed his word into the dead flesh of your heart. Rise up, he said, and you did. And immediately, we were told, his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, I remember, a lot of you weren't even here, but several years back, back in 2011, I I. I, my Achilles tendon snapped while I was beating Ife in basketball in the parking lot here. And um, it, it was a pretty big deal. It was, I had to have surgery and everything. And I, was, I couldn't walk for six weeks. I was in a wheelchair for six weeks, or on crutches too. I couldn't put any weight on it. And then I had to relearn balance. And that took a long time. Because it wasn't just getting the strength back. It's also learning how to walk and, and getting your coordination back. That took a long time. It was about a year before I was back to normal after that. This man's never walked at all. In an instant, that the muscle tissue and the tendons and the, and the bones are all set where they should be. And, and there's no learning to balance or learning coordination. There's no physical therapy here. Jesus gives him all of that through Peter instantaneously. If you put the man's legs under a microscope or whatever it is you measure legs with, you'd say, this man has healthy legs. He's, been, he's, a, he's a healthy 40-year-old man with normally functioning legs. If you were to drink the wine at the wedding at Cana, uh, you'd say, my goodness, this wine has been aged to perfection. But in reality, it was like 30 seconds old. It hasn't been aged at all. It was just made instantaneously. Now, you might read this and say, come on now, this, this, this is not how the human body works. Lame people don't just get up and walk and that's, that. that, that yes, that, that's the point. That's why this is called a miracle and not a normal because it doesn't happen all the time. It's a miracle. A miracle says God is doing what nature all by itself and the human person all by himself or herself cannot do. Just look at the guy. Uh, verse 8, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And we can know from this verse with certainty that he's not an Anglican, because Anglicans just don't do this kind of thing, walking and leaping and, and, and praising God. He must be, I don't know, Pentecostal or something, but there he is. Uh, but if you put yourself in his sandals or his shoes, you could probably understand if he probably didn't have shoes because he didn't walk, but let's say he did. You could probably understand. He's only imagined what it must be like to walk and to run and to jump. He's never had that experience at all. Uh, He's probably said to himself, I'll never do that. And then uh, now he can feel strength coursing through his his legs. He's never felt that before. So of course he jumps. Of course he leaps. Uh, The word that Luke uses for leap is only found here. It's not found elsewhere. But, But the scene that he paints for us, does have a history behind it, I think, in Luke's writings. Mary, bearing Jesus in her womb, comes to her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, you remember. And at the sound of, of Mary's voice, Elizabeth feels her baby leap. And the Holy Spirit tells her why. Your baby knows that his Lord has come, and so he's leapt for joy. Now, I want you to look where this man is. What's his location? Where is he now? He's been at the gate. He's always been at the gate. The door has always been shut to him. He's smelled the feast, but he's known himself to be cut off and forsaken. The priests have said to him, you can't come in because of your infirmity. But now Jesus of Nazareth has come. The great physician has cured him. The great high priest has said, rise up and come in. There he is in the temple. Now, if this man doesn't know, at some point he's going to want to ask, so who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Can you tell me, Peter, John? Well, Isaiah actually has the answer for him. Behold, your God will come and save you. He writes, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and thirsty ground, the thirsty ground springs of water and the ransomed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Your God, Jesus of Nazareth, has come to save you. He saved this man. Have you heard him? He's held out his hand to you. Silver and gold, he doesn't promise you, but he offers you freely what all the silver and gold in the whole world could never buy. Your sins forgiven, your shame removed, the power of the grave broken into pieces. He has ransomed you by his blood. He's taken you by the hand and he's raised you up and led you into his father's house. There's a lot of sorrow and pain and trouble and loss in this world. There's no denying that. But Jesus of Nazareth has set everlasting joy upon your head. And and one day, not many days from now, all sorrow and sighing and infirmity and death shall flee away forever. Now all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I mean, they've all just come in for prayers. And this is not the usual way you enter the temple for prayers. They were maybe more like Anglicans. They they weren't leaping or jumping. But here's this guy leaping and and jumping. And so people take a look at him. And maybe some of them rub their eyes because they can't believe what they're seeing. One guy says to his wife, well, that's the guy who was by the gate. And his wife says, no, it can't be the guy who's by the gate because his his legs are are bent and, and deformed. He says, no, it's him. And they get closer. And it's him. And that's happening. All through the temple courts, people are seeing this guy and recognizing he was the beggar at the gate. What's happened to his legs? Who are those men with him? What on earth is all of this about? They'd ask themselves. To find out the answer to that question, you have to come back next week. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, who is our God, to come and heal us and save us, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. We thank you for him. I pray for anyone here who may not have taken his hand and been raised up, that you might uh, pierce the heart and bring that person to faith. Um, I pray for all of those who do believe, those of us who do believe, Lord, that you will help us remember that uh, this healing is something that goes on throughout our whole life and always turn to you for help and for ongoing uh, healing and and, uh, hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.